One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The FT. Welcome to World Weekly with me, Ben Hall, the world news editor of the Financial Times. On the show this week, we are looking at US politics and specifically at the budget battles gripping Washington, D.C., and the Republican Party's role in that battle. We are now into the second week of a U.S. federal government shutdown and are hurtling towards a potential U.S. default if Congress cannot agree to raise the U.S. debt ceiling on October the 17th. This brinkmanship has been brought about by hardline Republicans who want to use the moment to challenge Barack Obama's flagship healthcare reforms. But a Gallup poll this week showed support for the Republicans has plunged to 28% as the public tires of this hardline stance. So how worried are moderate Republicans about the political consequences of this uncompromising strategy? Joining me down the line from Washington is Richard McGregor, the FT's Washington bureau chief, and Edward Luce, the FT's chief US commentator. Richard, can you tell us how the Republican Party got to this point? Well, basically, you have to go back to the start of the year when there was a deal forced on the Republicans because they couldn't avoid it because of the law to accept a tax rise. That was the so-called fiscal cliff. And they emerged, I think, bruised and battered after that fight. And in February, around February, they agreed to lift the debt ceiling reluctantly, but they didn't want to have a fight about it. Now, soon after that, I think is the the key point, which is really the genesis of where we are today. They had a meeting for all members of the Republican House of Representatives caucus at Williamsburg, and they basically decided to double down on the budget. They agreed on a, a much, much tougher budget than they'd agreed on in previous years, and they were already pretty tough. They agreed on a budget which was 10 years to balance, in other words, a rapid fiscal contraction, And they basically set their sights on the debt ceiling where we are now to negotiate that. That was the first event. In other words, they decided on a tough approach back then. The second event has been this sort of Tea Party outbreak led by Ted Cruz, the freshman senator from Texas, over summer, railing against Obamacare or Mr. Obama's health law, which is launched on October 1. That's the second front. He pushed for and eventually forced the Republican House Speaker, John Boehner, who was very reluctant to go down this path, to tie funding for Obamacare and later a year delay for Obamacare to the budget. So we had two outbreaks, if you like, earlier this year at this big meeting in Williamsburg over summer when Obamacare was forced onto the House leadership as well. And that's why we find the budget wars now being fought on two terrifying fronts, if you like, the actual budget itself and the debt ceiling. To what extent has this standoff been driven by an ideological vanguard? Aren't many of those objectives shared by Republicans of all stripes? To a degree, yes. I mean, the party as a whole has moved to the right, but I don't think the tactics that we're seeing them employ now are the tactics that all of them wanted to employ. Mr. Obama talks uh, about one faction of one party in one arm of Congress forcing this on the country, and to an extent that's true. But I think maybe the Republican House caucus is maybe a little bit more right-wing, a little bit more ideological, a little bit more antsy 
than just the Tea Party. That's the first thing. Tactically, though, I think the tactics of this showdown have been forced on the House leadership and Mr Boehner, and they've struggled with that. Edward, are we seeing the takeover of the Republican Party by a Tea Party minority? I guess some of the Tea Party groups see themselves as mounting a hostile takeover. Freedom Works is one of the big Tea Party groups has actually launched a book with that name last year. So hostile takeover is in the minds of some kind of Trotskyist, entryist strategy. But I think, I think as Richard says, it's a broader change in the Republican Party here that reflects an attitude amongst a significant minority of the electorate. They're overwhelmingly white. They tend to be older. They're heavily concentrated in the South, although it is nationwide. And you get this in all democracies. You get sections of the population that don't like modernity, that don't like the changes they see around them, that want to take back their country. And in most political systems, they remain a noisy minority. But in this political system, which has been dubbed by some a vetocracy, a vetoocracy, they're able to bring things to a halt. And I think that's what we're seeing here. There's nothing unique about uh, anti-modernism in America. It's, it's common to all, all changing societies. What is unique to America is a political system that allows them to bring it to a halt. And Obamacare, the fact that the sort of real casus bellum initially with this budget and debt ceiling fight was over Obamacare, I think is no accident. It bears the name of the president and is therefore capable of rallying this base in a way that almost nothing else is. This president is, of course, mixed race, African-American. During his presidency, gay marriage has become mainstream. During this presidency, large demographic changes have continued and America is increasingly becoming a, a minority-majority country, no one group being in the majority. And I think that this is less ideological than it is cultural and sociological. And the Tea Party Republicans and those who sympathize with them who aren't maybe technically members of the Tea Party represent, for better or for worse, and I think it's very much for the worse, the dominant spirit in the Republican Party right now. The opinion polls appear to suggest that popular support for the Republicans is plunging because of this fiscal standoff. Is that feeding back to the conservative base? Is there any sense of awareness of that? Or actually, does that just not factor into their calculations? I don't think it's factoring in very much. I'm sure there's an awareness of the national polls. There's also a distrust of polls that are carried out by mainstream media organizations. And I suspect Gallup would be defined as such as well. But the key thing here is that between 40 and 50% of Republicans support this strategy of holding the debt ceiling and the budget hostage to various Republican demands. And those would tend to be the most conservative Republicans. They would also tend to be the ones who vote in primary elections to select Republican nominees. So 45% of the parties, probably two-thirds of those who vote in primary elections. And those are the people that congressmen, that Republican lawmakers are going to listen to most, because those are the only people who can threaten their job. They're in safe districts, many of them gerrymandered. They have no fear of losing an election in the general election. They fear a challenge from a right-wing Tea Party rival for their nomination if they fail to keep the flame alive. And so those are the numbers and sentiment, particularly in the House, where everybody faces election every two years. Those are the numbers that they're really looking at, not the national numbers. 
Richard, if you look at moderate Republicans, do you think that ultimately when faced with the real danger of a US default and all the financial turmoil and economic turmoil that would bring, might they break with the Tea Party and vote through a a rise in the debt ceiling? It's possible. I think there's already a group of about 22 Republicans in the House of Representatives who've put their hand up and said they would vote for the budget without defunding Obamacare, and I think possibly for a debt ceiling increase as well. In other words, that's enough, along with Democrats, to to get a bill through. But I don't think they want to be put in that position, and I don't think the leadership wants to, to put them in that position either. I think the leadership would like to get the debt ceiling off the table, at least temporarily, because the implications of not lifting it are too great for the economy, for financial markets globally, and like to move the fight back to the budget. But, you know, moderate Republicans, so-called, are in short supply, and there just aren't that many of them to give them a huge heft in the broader caucus in any case. Edward, give us a sense of how the White House sees the political stakes here. I don't mean in terms of the need to raise the debt ceiling, but is there a political calculation that actually at the end of this, they could see the destruction of the Republican Party and then that will be all to their longer term electoral advantage? I think that it's impossible to understand Obama's firmness so far on refusing to negotiate over the debt ceiling without looking at the August 2011 showdown, the last showdown over the debt ceiling that resulted in America's first ever downgrade by Standard & Poor's, in which Obama's position was quite the opposite. It was open to negotiation, and he got burned by that. He, He thought he'd got a deal with John Boehner, the Republican speaker, and Boehner thought that they had a deal to reduce spending and increase taxes in exchange for raising the debt ceiling. And then that deal was scuppered by Eric Cantor, who is Boehner's number two. So it was the leadership rather than the backbenchers, as it were, who torpedoed that. And Obama was left looking weak, prevaricating, and the kind of person who always blinks at the last moment. So it's it's very clear he doesn't want to repeat that, that he has learned from that lesson and considers that it would be a disaster on all levels to cave in to Republican ransom holding over the debt ceiling. Will they gain politically? Yes, they've already gained politically in the sense that Republicans are damaging their chances of retaining the House of Representatives in next year's midterm elections. And Obama doesn't really have much chance in any scenario of getting stuff done as president unless he can wrest control from the Republicans. So, you know, I guess his number one political priority is winning the House back to the Democrats next year. And this is helpful. Richard, how do you think Obama will wrest control back? How far will he take it? Well, I think there's two elections. And in in the US system, there are two different electorates. The number and types of people who vote in the presidential elections is different from the midterms. Now, what we've got coming up next year, a midterm election, and the remarkable thing is that the Republican Party has been severely damaged, but it's still quite possible after these elections that they will have both houses of Congress in their grip. It's very, very difficult for the Democrats to win the House back from the Republicans because of the gerrymandered districts or the the number of safe Republican seats there. There's just not that many up for grabs unless there's a real Republican collapse. And secondly, the Senate, once again, the Democrats are a victim of their success many years ago. They've got many, many more vulnerable seats up in basically red states. So I think 
If there is a victory for Mr Obama in this, it will certainly be keeping the Senate next year. That's the key election. If he were to win the House, that would be quite a remarkable victory. But going down to the 2016 presidential election, if the Republicans keep on this path, then they you know, are in all likelihood going to hand the, the White House back to the Democrats once again because they will have addressed none of the issues that got them into trouble last year. And they really, in a national election, really stand the threat of being marginalised. Have we reached the peak of Tea Party influence? I don't think so. I think the broader trend uh, behind all this is that the long-term easy income gains for Americans aren't coming back. Ed has written often about this. Middle-class wages have been stagnant for three decades and will probably remain so. So what we've got here is a broader fight over declining spoils. And I just think that's going to just continue to ratchet up political tensions across the board. Edward, do you think ultimately the Republicans will blink over the debt ceiling? You have to assume they will because the consequences are so dire. But you, I don't think, can be 100% certain. The potential for accident in a very fluid political situation like this uh, is very high. Next week, October the 17th, is the day the Treasury says it won't, won't have enough cash balance to service its obligations. But it won't be till the end of the month and early November that the really big obligations come due. There's a big social security payment, and then there's a big bond coupon payment. My prediction, if I was to stick my neck out, is that this will ratchet up until late October, at which point Obama and Boehner will agree to extend the debt ceiling by a few weeks in exchange for agreeing to have some kind of fiscal talks or set up some kind of bipartisan committee. And we'll be very, very quickly into the next countdown to the next debt ceiling deadline. So I think, you know, that's not as bad a scenario as an actual technical default, which I doubt the Republicans would would go into with their eyes open. But it's a close second bad scenario because it's hard to see how we're going to get out of this countdown, this constant Democrat sword hanging over America's willingness to service its debt. It looks like we're going to have this cliffhanger for several more weeks. Gentlemen, thank you very much. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Richard McGregor and Edward Luce in Washington. World Weekly is produced by Katie Carney. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.